And now, a real story from a real soldier. It's the Soldier Stories Podcast on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast Soldier. This week's Soldier Story begins. All right, it is time for episode two of Soldier Stories. My name is Fife, and today I am featuring the second part of Tom Pfeiffer, who happens to be my father's story. Uh, in the first podcast, we actually covered uh, all of the training and the months leading up to training and, and his interactions with family and things like that. Uh, he's now graduated from not only basic training, but advanced technical training as a member of the Army Security Agency, the ASA, whose job was to monitor other countries who we deemed might be a threat. Some of those countries included Russia, Korea, and Vietnam. So let's uh, let's get into uh, what happens after your advanced training uh, with the ASA. Do you get a leave home before you head out, or do you ship straight to Bangkok? No, we uh, got a 30-day leave after uh, the advanced training where I came home. And that's the first time I really started seeing that the political landscape was really changing. Uh, there was more in the news about Vietnam. They actually started showing uh, pictures of combat. There wasn't still a lot of protesting, but there was a lot of discussions going on about the, you know, why we were there, what we were doing. But it really still didn't hit the college campuses at that time. I mean, it was starting, but not a lot. But I did notice it. And on your 30 days home, did you see any of your other buddies who had gone off to serve as well? Were any of them back? Yeah. As a matter of fact, in my neighborhood, uh, my next-door neighbor was in the Army. Uh, He was home from basic training on leave. Uh, My other friend was in the Navy. Uh, He was home after training at the Great Lakes uh, Naval Station in Chicago. And I had a third friend that... uh, became an officer, and he had his assignment. He was going to be an ensign on a a destroyer. So all of us had grown up, and here we all are now in the military. Uh, So it was an interesting time. Was it weird to go away a boy and come back a man? Like, did you feel like that's what it was? No, I I really didn't. Uh, I think my parents noticed it more in, in me than I did. Of course, I got a lot away with a lot more than I used to do. Uh, they weren't happy with a lot of it, but it was different. You know, I think it was just it was a different relationship at this time, you know. Sure. Because I was getting ready to go away uh, for a year, which, you know, to them was an eternity, you know. So you're getting ready to uh, ship off to Bangkok, Thailand, uh, with the understanding that you will be living a civilian life yeah, there. Basically, yeah. Although not civilian. No. The regular army right. is not directing you what no. to do at this point. No, at this point, they you didn't have people didn't pull KP. They hired locals to do that. They didn't have to clean up their rooms. They hired locals to do that. It was it was more or less I was hoping like a vacation time. The job I was going to do was going to be an important job, but there would be no danger to it. Thirty days. What do you do in that time frame? What did you want to make sure was done before you left? Well. You know, I just got a lot to, you know, I talked to my dad a lot about going overseas and he prepared me a little bit for what I would for what I would see and do. They were comfortable at that time knowing that I wasn't going to go directly to Vietnam, uh, you know, and be any kind of danger, period. So they were a little bit comfortable. They were really sad. First time I ever saw my dad cry when I was leaving because, you know, I'd be gone for a year. But uh, it was difficult for me to do, you know. But I was looking forward to it at this point. So you get on the plane and you fly to Thailand. Correct. You know, I got to remember, I'm just 18, 19 years old at this point, And the military is saying, here's your orders. 
be in Bangkok, Thailand by, you know, July 9th or whatever it was uh, to this outfit, you know, and you got to find it on your own. I mean, kids today have a hard time finding the corner store, let alone leaving Detroit and have to be in Bangkok, Thailand on your own. Okay. So it was kind of an experience in itself. So how did it go? Well, it was, it was not easy, but it was, it was fun. You know, we, I ended up going from Detroit to Oakland Army Terminal. So this wasn't like go to the, this wasn't go to, go to the air base and they've got your plane ready for you. No. There was more steps in this process than, yeah. than you thought. I had to leave. I left Detroit uh, commercial and they said be at Oakland Army Terminal in California by the state, which I did. And I got to Oakland, California. Never been in California, never been to Oakland. And uh, I was there for about three days at this point. And at this point, it started getting really real. Uh, you had to fill out a will. You know, you're oh, an 18-year-old wow. kid. Life insurance is on you. Right. You had to fill out your life insurance. You had to fill out a will, which, you know, I really didn't have anything to fill out. But the fact was, you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm 18 years Why am I filling out this will, you know? Yeah. It went through your dental process because where you're going possibly didn't have people to take care of your teeth and they check your mouth. And if you had a bad tooth, they didn't have time to sit there and play. They just pulled the dang thing, you know, which, which they did obviously on me, they pulled two of them and uh, just basically got your stuff together, your records, made sure your shot records were up to date, make sure everything was up to date. And then after that, then you boarded a uh, military flight at this point in time from Oakland army terminal uh, headed to the uh, Hawaii and Hawaii was our first stop. We were there for about 20 minutes uh, just to get fuel. And you have, I, I, I want to bring this up because I'll be sharing some photos and things like mm-hmm. that uh, on the uh, Soldier Stories podcast page. Uh, but you have like four pages of photos. In that 20 minutes that yeah. you were in Hawaii, you yep. got some shots. Yeah, I, basically up right at the airport. <laughs> really didn't have time to do much, but I'd never been in Hawaii, you know, so I had to make sure everybody knew I was in Hawaii. But then from Hawaii, we went to uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines uh, for lunch. And at that point, all civilian people that were on the aircraft had to depart. That was uh, people that had spouses coming over to be with their husbands and families and stuff because Clark Air Force Base at the time was a big military installation. And uh, then it started to get real. Then it was all military people heading for Southeast Asia at that time. And uh, so we left Clark Air Force Base and arrived in Bangkok, Thailand. And the first time after we arrived was my turn to step off the airplane. It was like I walked into a wall. The humidity and the heat were stifling getting off an air-conditioned airplane. The the type of heat and humidity that just takes your oxygen away? It took it away. It just took my breath away. And the smell was just nothing I had ever experienced in my life. Because at that time, Pancock was still a primitive city. It wasn't like it is now. I mean, people were cooking in the streets. They were going to the bathroom a lot of times in the streets. They had rivers that they called clongs. And basically, they were garbage dumps. I mean, it was just a a smell that was something that you you would never forget. But after being there... You know, for a length of time, you never really smelt it that much anymore. But the first time was just unbelievable, just okay. unbelievable. So now you uh, now you have to try and navigate your way right. to where you're supposed yep. to go? To Sierra Court, had no clue. Uh, got a taxi, me and another guy that were, they were going there, got a, a taxi, Thai taxi, and basically they could speak pidgin English pretty good, but, you know, I had no clue. And basically we just showed him, and he knew where it was, you know. So we basically got to Siri Court, which was a— Looked like a Holiday Inn. You know, it was like four or five stories high and swimming pool, tennis courts, 
right in downtown Bangkok. And I said, this Sounds is, like you have the life. I said, this is going to be the best thing I ever <laughs> I ever did, you know. So it was, right. was kind of interesting. You were probably at that point thinking, military? <laughs> yeah, yeah, military. This is great. This is great. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, of course, this is all going to change yeah, pretty yeah. quickly for you. When I checked in, it's like I said, we still had military our, uh, that did our clerical force and supply and that type of thing. And when I reported, I reported into the first sergeant, and he said, okay, this is where you got to billet for the night. And he said, uh, be back here in the morning. And so the morning came. A guy came up and said, you don't have to be there yet. He said, just take your time, sleep in, do whatever you have to do. I said, oh. This is great. This is unreal, man. They're treating me like a real human being here, you know. And uh, went out that night, went downtown Bangkok, went to all the buyers, you know, saw the sights, you know, and this is going to be fantastic. Came back, went to bed about 3 o'clock in the morning and knock on the door. It says, report downstairs at a first sergeant. I said, what's going on? He said, I don't know. You got to be down there. So I went down there and came in and uh, first sergeant said, "Uh, you're all rested up. You have a good time the last couple of days? I said, yep. He says, well, go down to supply and pick up your gear. I said, what are you talking about, pick up my gear? He says, go pick your gear up. Well, I went down the gear, and there I was. I got my helmets and my backpacks and all that kind of stuff. I said, what's going on, man? You're going up north. You're going up to northeast Thailand on the Laotian border. And I said, what? I said, I was supposed to be in Bangkok. That's what my order said. I said, boy, you're in the Army. You go where they tell you to go. You know? said, oh, man. Back to that, you do what you're told. Yep. So <laughs> here I was heading for the uh, Air Force Base in Bangkok and uh, boarded a C-130 airplane and headed up to uh, Udorn Air Base, which was in northeast Thailand. Very primitive up there, to say the least. You're literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, basically at that time, it was in the middle of nowhere. And... Uh, at this point in time, the first time I heard the word secret war, uh, they called it a secret war because basically the U.S. military at that time wasn't supposed to be in Thailand. Uh, they were doing an advisory role to the Thai army uh, because they had a lot of insurgents coming in from Laos and Viet Cong uh, down near the Ho Chi Minh Trail coming in trying to cause trouble. So at that time, that's when things really started getting getting kind of real. You know? It was kind of your wake-up call moment. Yeah. And how did it feel you experienced getting off of that plane in Bangkok, how did it feel experience-wise the moment you stepped out of this plane into the middle of nowhere? It was all military. I mean, it was the the phantom jets were leaving to bomb North Vietnam from that base. Uh, They had helicopter rescue teams that go out that retrieve pilots. I mean, it was a, a real active military operation that was going on at that point in time. So at this point, you felt like a small wheel and a small clog in a big wheel, you know. Yeah. Uh, somebody met us at the airport and uh, got on in a Jeep, as a matter of fact, and said, well, we'll take you out to the 5th RRU. Uh, RRU is uh, an acronym for Radio Research Unit, but it was a cover for our outfit just a cover title that they used because there was no Army Security Agency it was supposed to be anywhere You don't there. exist. Right, we didn't exist. Would the government, if you had been captured or, God forbid, killed, would our government acknowledge that you were of the United States military? Obviously, I really didn't know uh, about capture or anything like that. But <clears throat> what they did tell us, if, if we did get killed in uh, any type of action, which I seriously wasn't considering at that point, uh, that we would be reported as uh, killed in uh, a training accident. Oh. Because, again, we weren't supposed to be engaging any kind of uh, fighting or anything like that where we were. That's got to be a scary moment to be told that. Yeah, it was. And, again, it wasn't, you know, uh, 
how can I say that? I mean, it wasn't like James Bond or it wasn't like, you know, that type of thing. I mean, this is real-time intelligence that we were gathering at this point that people depended on, you know, to keep them alive. And, and this is when it really got real, you know. Did uh, did you think you were dealing with this in a way that um, that you were comfortable in this situation? I had, had to get my head in the game at that point. I mean, there was a lot going on in, in that time, but that time frame. And uh, you had to get your head in the game. And the first time I was uh, given a mission <clears throat> where I had to do it on my own, you know, and uh, wondering if I could really do it, you know, and if I screwed up, well, you know, I could screw up big time and somebody could get hurt. And, I mean, it was a lot of pressure for an 18-year-old kid or a 19-year-old kid at this point. So you're based out of northern Thailand at this point. Yeah. But you did have missions that took you inside yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. A couple of times uh, we ended up going on uh, missions uh, – and again, our, our, our job, and I don't want to really get technical or get into a lot of it, but our, our basic job was to monitor troop movements and identify troop movements through electronic surveillance and uh, voice surveillance uh, of the different units. And we did that, that by monitoring the radio traffic. We would try to determine which units were operational, which units were coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, were they uh, 100% strength? Were they 50% strength? Were they on rest and recreation? Were they pulled off the line? All this intelligence was real-time intelligence that was direct support to the combat units that were now really getting a big buildup in uh, Vietnam. Still not the full-on war that we all know yet because this is just the beginning. Yeah, We're in the first few years of the Vietnam War. This is what year? 66. And officially we were... Pulled Just out in 72. 72. So yeah. this is six years before yeah. we had officially yeah. left that the, war. The, the big buildup had just started where Johnson was, was bringing in a lot, of the, a lot of the combat troops into Vietnam, and they were being dispersed amongst the countryside. Now, the ASA had a lot of, a lot of different uh, outfits. You know, They had people that were attached to the 101st Airborne, or they were attached to the, the uh, Big Red One, or they were attached to— uh, the special forces, you know, in Vietnam that they were there constantly. And we had a big uh, outpost in Fubai, uh, Vietnam, where guys were actually stationed right there around the clock. And they were doing uh, surveillance work, too. Okay. So the surveillance work begins. Right. Is there any moments you recall that stand out where you guys – made a huge impact by catching someone somewhere at, at a certain time and you were able to relay that information well, on? The problem was we really didn't know what results immediately that we were having. I mean, we'd had linguists that were, uh, were uh, spoke Laotian or they spoke uh, Vietnamese. Uh, they were with us. We had what they called direction find people that they would triangulate the voice intercepts or the uh, radio intercepts. They would triangulate that and they could tell at what location the different units were. Uh, they had an analyst that would analyze all this traffic and send it off. Were we airstriking at this point? Yeah, we were airstriking North Vietnam at that point. So that information that you were sending back could have resulted sure. in airstrikes, yep. but you wouldn't know because you, again, were operating outside right. of the regular Army parameters. Right. Your direct... Uh, people that you reported to were the National Security Agency and the Department, Department of Defense. Defense. Right. I, I kind of feel like maybe the military does things this way for a specific reason. There's so many moving parts. Yeah. You, you only need to know what sure. you need to know. You're compartmentalized, so you only knew 
what you were doing in case something happened where you did get captured. You couldn't. You couldn't really tell, you know, what these other people were doing. But the guys in Vietnam that were there all the time, they were given real-time information that was happening right then and there. I mean, they could tell a, a company that there was a VC unit operating within 10 miles of their, their location where our stuff was going up the chain. And then they were deciding at that point in time what to do with it. Because although we had people doing small groups, I was more doing the larger movements, troop movements that were coming down. What was um, moments that stand out to you once you were, were there? And, you know, what, what are some things that, that just you instantly think about when you think about your time being in northern Thailand and going into Vietnam? Well, you could tell sometimes they would come in and say, you know, when you're listening, you, you would identify a certain operator. Because you could, after listening for so long, you could identify his traits when he was talking or operating his radios. So you could mm-hmm. identify these people. It got to almost be sometimes you almost like knew these people. And they would come in and say, okay, at 0400 hours, you're going to start uh, carpet bombing this area. And you knew that your guy was in this area. So you'd, he'd be up, you'd be listening to him, you know, and they'd be doing their stuff. And all of a sudden, it would be nothing. You know, he'd look at four o'clock and he's go. Oh, the bombing's going on, you know. So then, if he didn't come back, you knew that he wasn't there anymore. But then sometimes he would come back, and and these are enemy guys that yeah. you hear every, right. single, every day, single day, and then yeah. they're gone. Yep, yep. Wow. Yep. And then the really primitive ones, like you would be in uh, the ones in Laos, were really primitive, and they would operate on generators. They'd be on a bicycle, and they would pedal the bicycle <laughs> wow. to get the generator going. Really? So you'd be trying to listen to their signal, and as you can see on your monitor, there the voice. Is going up and down. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing as when you were trying to listen to them, that it, it was going up and down, up and down, up and up and down, up and down. So it was like a sing-songy type uh, transmission that you had to figure out what he was saying, you know. So oh, it was wow. like different. It was, it was kind of interesting. I, see, I'd never heard anything where primitive enough, they're yeah. running their generator off of a bicycle. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's just to me that's that's crazy, but I mean, you may I guess they made do with what they had at yeah, the time. They did. So there is an incident that you've told me about in the past yeah. that I think stands out yeah, amongst your stories. Yeah. Well, you, you ran into some plainclothes gentlemen. Yeah, well, we, my, I was a specialist in a lot of Laotian uh, stuff. And uh, one night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I had a clerk come down and said, report to the, the uh, headquarters tent. I reported the headquarters tent, and there was a couple gentlemen there in, in fatigues, no markings on, they looked like, khaki fatigue type things. No markings on. And the first sergeant, I want you to go with these guys. And I said, where am I going? He said, well, you don't need to know that. He says, all you got to do is do what you do here. And I said, okay. And the guy said, come with me. And so I got in the Jeep with them and we went to Udorn Air Base, got on a helicopter. And uh, about two hours later, we landed out in the middle of nowhere. Didn't have a clue where I was, but I kind of guessed that we were in Laos somewhere. They told me that one of their people had gotten ill and had to be uh, air evac'd out to, uh, to Bangkok and that they needed a replacement and, and they needed somebody right away. They didn't have time to get a replacement from anywhere else. And they said if I could do it for a few days, they would really appreciate it. Well, you know, they weren't military, so I have no idea really even at this point who they were. But You have some guesses. Yeah, I did my same. I did what I was doing. And they said monitor this frequency or monitor these people, which I did. And they would tell me at a certain time, listen for a certain traffic, which I surmised was somebody that was operating somewhere, you know, that wanted to know if they were still there or not. But it was an interesting time, you know, and we, we had no Americans by us except those two or three American guys that brought me over. We were, uh, we were uh, protected by the, 
don't know if I pronounce it right, Humongs. They were the uh, the Aborigines of Laos. They were a primitive uh, group that was really loyal to the Americans. You know, they got screwed by America, but they uh, they really uh, uh, helped a lot of lot of people. So you ended up out there for how many days? I was out there about a, about five days, I think. And if you if you had to guess, uh, there there's a few different organizations you may have been there with, but you're not sure of. It could have been no. CIA, NSA, DOD. Could have been anybody. Could have been anybody. No yeah. clue. No yeah. markings. Nothing. No. And you never found out why. Didn't find out anything. Just told to be there and did it and left and went back to Thailand. They dropped you off. Yep. Said thank you for your service. Or did they even bother with that? Is no. Later. Just- <laughs> Just dropped you off. You know, you did your job. I mean, that's what you're paid to do. I mean, you did what they ask you to do. It seems so. It seems so crazy. You know, I think about myself as a 18, 19 year old, and um, <laughs> I can't even imagine being in that situation. You know, it's it's a different world. It, it was. I mean, you just you really didn't think about it. You just did your job. You know, and that was all you had to do. So you spent your time in uh, the northern area there, as well as your trips into Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, about how long? I don't know. A few trips. You go two or three days at a time and come back. You know, but and how many how many people went out with you? It was small, well, right? It was a you go in a team. You know, linguist, uh, uh, operator, analyst, five or six guys. You know, and operate the equipment. And then come back. How long do you end up out in the field alone, yeah. detached from a larger group? You know, maybe a couple of days, you know, no big deal. That was okay. only done a few times, so. And when you do that, though, you come back and you, they give you time off or? No, you just go back into your regular mission. I mean, uh, okay. the, the place itself had a mission that, that they were responsible for. The side ones were just a special. Main operation. missions, side missions. Right, right. Okay. Main mission was like going to work every day. The guys went, did their job and went back to their tent and the next day would go do their job and whatever. Okay. But then you would get assigned a special mission. There wasn't a lot of guys that did that. There was only a few guys that had either the technical expertise or were considered to be good operators that were able to go on some of this stuff. And some of the guys left our unit and become what they called ARDF. It was uh, aerial a radio direction finding, and they went up in airplanes and did the same thing uh, that the people on the ground did, but they flew over. Is there any any other things that, that stand out from that time that you want to discuss? Any any moments well, that it you wasn't, experienced? It wasn't all bad. I mean, it was a, it was a, you had your good good times and your bad times, but the good times were I got to see Bob Hope show. Bob Hope show. Yep. And he doesn't come empty-handed. When he comes, he brings along yep. the entertainment. Yep. Uh, he brought, the one I saw, he had Joey Heatherden and Anita Bryant and Miss World in 1966, 67. And, and I think you said that she was the representative from India. Yep. She was Miss World from India. Joey Heatherton, uh, she was there in... Uh, he put on a really good show. I, I got to see it at Udorn Air Base. Great uh, photo Christmas of you time. dancing with uh, one yeah. of the performers. Uh, Miss uh, World of Go-Go, 1967 or 66. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. He put on a good show, and I really enjoyed that. And I got to go on R&R in Bangkok, and I, I enjoyed that too. Uh, so there were some good moments. The guys were great fun. Uh, we had uh, funny to for some people to hear it, but we had house girls uh, that were locals that uh, came in and, uh, of course, were checked when they came in the compound, but they would take care of doing our cleaning, uh, different things like that. Because Laundry. We, right, because we didn't have enough time to do that stuff, and they would do that, and we'd pay them a, a stipend for 
what they did, and they were local people. In fact, our house girl, her name was Rotri, and she uh, was actually a school teacher, but she made more money uh, from us. The American dollar was worth a lot more than the Thai dollar, mm-hmm. and her father was a colonel in the Thai army. So and she was very educated. She did a lot of our, our, our cleaning and that. But uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, I got invited over to their home. Yeah, let's talk about yep. dinner that night. Your father in the first podcast. Yep. One of the things he told you when you went joined the military is to go all in, yep. try new yep. things, yep. Uh, I did. soak in the experiences. <laughs> so let's talk about that experience. Uh, what did you? Uh, what did you? What was the main course? Well, I <laughs> dinner that I, night. I didn't eat a lot of Thai food at that point in time because you really didn't have a chance to to really get out and. and eat anywhere but so you had no idea what you were going to eat i you know they fed me a lot of the thai food and and one of the things that we actually had was monkey brains we had (sighs) and it wasn't something that was normal but it was they just happened to that was that that was was a course from northern thailand they 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 had that as one of their courses and i tried it which is (laughs) what your father told you to do exactly you know you're being a good son tried a lot of things but it is it's 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 a situational thing Anywhere else in the world, but that very moment, that very place, you're probably not going to try no. monkey brains. No, no. And honestly, I think in that moment, it might have been rude of you to say no. No. They're very, very nice people, but traditional people, you know. Yeah. So you just, you accept and you, yep. you went with it. What? <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to ask this. Um, how did it taste? <laughs> what, what was it like? I don't remember. I mean, I was so such a hurry to finish it. I, 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 and once I knew what it was, but it was interesting because their home was a teak. It was made out of teak wood, their home. And you had to go up a ladder to get into the, the living quarters because of the flooding that, that used to happen during the monsoon season. Mm-hmm. And it was all built up on stilts. So it was kind of an interesting thing to do. Normal normal people didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. Which I, I just happened to do and I took it, but it was kinda of interesting. What would you what would you say are some other experiences that you took away from this? Like your your father said specifically to take away these experiences and remember them. Yeah. So in your time in Thailand and in your moments when you found yourself in Vietnam getting this intelligence and, and you know, before the actual mm-hmm. main part of the war broke out and it got crazy. What are just some other, I mean, paint, paint a picture of some other experiences. Was there, was there weather that you uh, had witnessed you'd yeah. never witnessed before? Was, no. I mean, what are some uh, things? Monsoon season was something I had never witnessed before. I mean, it would rain so hard that you couldn't see your hand out in front of your face. I remember you saying something to me. We were watching Forrest Gump and he talked about how it started to rain one day and it rained uh, it felt like it rained from the sky, from the ground, yeah. from the left, from the right. And you said yeah. that is one of the most accurately yeah. portrayed lines yeah. of a movie. Yeah, Where we were, where our tents were, they had actually had to build up footpaths that we could walk, maybe about three foot high that we would walk on because during the monsoon season it would flood. Wow. And our tents were raised up off the ground too because of the flooding. And it was funny because it would rain so hard you would be soaking wet and when it would stop 15 minutes later because of the heat, you could actually see the heat rising off your uniform, and it would dry so quick. What's it's the longest you experienced rain? Was it a couple, days? Two, three days, yeah. 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 And then <laughs> in Thailand, they have a, a holiday. It's, called, it's a water holiday, whatever. I can't recall exactly which holiday it was, but to get splashed or water dumped on you was an honor. So everybody would go around dumping buckets of water on everybody, all the civilian population that you would see for that day. It was a big celebration. That was kind of neat to see that. That's cool. Yep. 
And of course, Bangkok, Thailand was uh, interesting to see all the temples during R and R. And I never saw real monks; I saw monks, you know. And it was again for yeah. You actually took a really cool picture of a a young monk who had been walking by, maybe ten years old. Yep, yep. Buddhist monk. Yeah, and it was uh, you know again you're eighteen, nineteen years old, and uh, just something that you thought you would never see. I don't know if you want to mention it or talk about it. It's up to you if you want to move on. But uh, I know that you had some pictures. You you happened to arrive. I think you were on furlough. You were you were yeah. You were on furlough. You happened to arrive into an area of Thailand that had just moments before you yeah. got there had yeah. a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, uh, they called them Thai Kong. Basically, it was a Viet Cong in Thailand, and uh, there was a local official that got assassinated. On he went by him on a motorbike and killed him just before I was there. And I. I happened to have my camera with me, so I took some pictures. And and there was nothing graphic in the photos, no, but no. people were crowded people were around, around where it had yep. happened. Yep. And you noted on there, you know, you noted, I just narrowly missed yep. a Seen terrorist it. attack. Yep. And that's scary because had you been there those few minutes before, he might have took a shot uh, at you because you were an American walking around there. You just didn't know. I mean, it didn't happen that much at that time because things were just starting. But it happened enough where they used to target people like that, officials, just professors, doctors, anybody that was uh, an academic, yeah. they, would, they would go after mayors. But yeah, that, that just happened just, just before I was there. So part of uh, Vietnam, when you went in, most guys went there for a year. Some yeah. stayed longer. Yeah. But for the most part, you put your year in and then they, they shipped you off to somewhere yeah. else. It was called, where I was called a hardship area. And if you had a hardship area just before you were ready to ship out, uh, they would give you three choices of where you wanted to go. And uh, I had put in for uh, Germany, uh, Japan, and um, I think I put in for Panama. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember that. But I got I ended up getting Germany. Hmm. <laughs> it's funny thing about Germany, they really like beer there. Yes, they do. Yes. United States soldiers, from what I've seen in some of your photos, they also like beer. Oh yeah, they do. <laughs> but See, I, I have I have to say though, when I was when I was in Southeast Asia, it was all intelligence that was real time intelligence that that had real meaning at that in, instance that you were getting it. Uh, when I went to Europe, because it was the Cold War and you were facing off against the Russians, it was all practice. I think people forget. I, I don't think people grasped the reality of what was going on in the world at the time because Vietnam was such a focus. Now, by the time you're leaving Vietnam, it has become the world focus of yep. what's going on in Vietnam. Yep. And I think people in the United States forget that we were in the middle of a Cold War with Russia, that there was exactly. absolutely no conversation between the countries. Yep. We didn't like each other. And at any moment, all hell could have broke loose yep. there. It could have become another world war considering yep. we were already fighting in yep. Vietnam. They were supporting North Vietnam and we were supporting South Vietnam. So it was basically a small war between the United States and Russia. Right. Fought and by small time combatants. And it know. could have absolutely exploded into so much exactly. more. And I exactly. just think people forget that because the focus was on Vietnam at the time. Yep. But you're in Germany. Uh, you're headed to Germany, I should say. Correct. Uh, how did it feel when the day came when it was like, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the jungle and there's a little bit more civilization where I'm headed, uh, which is bad abling. Bad abling. Bad abling. Right. Looks like bad abling. <laughs> bad abling. 
Uh, how did it feel to know you were about to make this trip? Now you were going to see another country. Again, a guy who's never traveled much out of no. Canada. No. Now you're about to go to Germany. Yeah. Well, I got home off leave. I came, come back from Southeast Asia. I had 30 days leave before I went over. So it, it basically, and I still was only 19 years old. And, you know, I couldn't go partying or anything when I got home. But the interesting thing was the week I came back to Detroit was the week of the riots. 1967. Oh, wow. So you came home yep. that week yep. of came all weeks when riots. military personnel yep. were stationed yep. on the corners exactly. of the city of Detroit. Exactly. We arrived at uh, Metro. I arrived at Metro. I came in at Oakland Army Terminal in California. And at that time, the protesting was really hitting a high level, especially in California. And we were told, don't wear your uniforms because... You're only going to cause trouble. Well, I wasn't going to do that. You know, I was going to say, you want to do something? Fine. Come on. I'm ready, you know. Again, dad was a fighter. But (laughs) I wasn't going to do that. But that's what they were telling people. And you go through it, and it was interesting because you would actually see military uniforms in trash cans where guys would ditch their uniforms and put civilian clothes on. I think it's important to note that our country has grown to an understanding that back when you came home, Soldiers were the bad guys. We were the target, right? You were the target. People took it out on you. Yeah. Um, spit on, called names. God, I can't even imagine the amount of fights that our soldiers coming home got into just to defend their own honor. Fortunately, I wasn't. I never got spit on or nothing like that. But it happened. I had, yes, I had confrontations, but nothing of that sure. magnitude. I just I can't grasp that reality because I've grown up in a world, uh, you know, where. When our soldiers came home, we shook their hand, we thanked them. But that wasn't the case after Vietnam. No. Uh, soldiers were not mm-hmm. thanked. And, you know, even a lot of, a, a lot of those soldiers who, uh, who came home also became aggressors. Yeah. Not, I don't think they became aggressors towards, towards other soldiers. I think they understand the plight yeah. of the soldier, but, yeah. but definitely towards the government at the time. There was a lot of unrest in the country. So you came back, you, you kept your uniform on? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I came home, kept my uniform on. And you got to remember, a lot of guys that were in combat every day, uh, such as your father-in-law, had a lot of problems when they came back from Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, different places. Right. And they had a lot of uh, issues, PTSD, different things like that, what they were just trying to figure out. Yeah, they didn't understand it, you know. And when I was fortunate, I didn't have those problems because I was in for four years. I still had almost two years to go where I could wind down. These guys were in combat this morning— they were on a plane this afternoon, and they were back in the States the day after. Right. So one day you're dodging bullets, and the right. next day you're home in right. the United States right. where you don't have to worry about that. And it's totally, you know, people couldn't, you know, they felt like they were abandoning their friends or they were, you know, it was just too quick. Yeah. They didn't have that time to wind down, which I did, and I really did. You did. <laughs> and and that's an interesting thing. It makes me wonder if the military has changed the ways they do that since or if they've ever considered that that needs to happen. I look at your situation. You'd signed up for four years. They only keep you in the active uh, – what was it called again? Um, hardship. Hardship hard, tour. Hardship tour. They do yeah. that. They only keep you there one year. Well, you still had two more years to go. Right. So you ended up in Germany where, yes, your job is real, your mission is real, you're monitoring what's going on in Russia. But at the same time, it's practice because you're not – we're not in an active war with them. It's not real time. So you had these two years to kind of go, and you weren't a civilian by any means, but you got to do a lot of civilian lifestyle things. You played sports. Yep. 
You went out at night. Yeah. They had bars. Did everything. And you had this this opportunity to just wind down, wind down, and let it go. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. You you got home. The riots were happening. Yeah. I'm assuming you're probably standing guard at your own house. Well, basically, I arrived at uh, Metro Airport at the time, and it was right in the middle of the really hard time of the riots. And uh, when we got off the airplane, so this is before the soldiers were deployed in. No, no, they were they, they were, were there. They were already there. Okay. And, uh, I got off the plane, and they said, any military people disembarking the plane, report to the USO. So I did, reported to the USO. And, of course, my parents couldn't come out at that time because they had the uh, curfews on. Sure. You couldn't travel a lot of the places. Right. So I was there by myself. Anyway, you reported to the USO, and you had to check in, and they would ask you, where where do you live? Do you live in Detroit? Yes, I do. You know, what precinct do you live in? Told them what precinct it was. So what they did is they bust us from Metro Airport to the local precinct where we lived, and then we got a police escort car that would that drove us home. Police escort yeah. to come home. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm assuming your dad was probably on guard because yep. yep. you're living in yep. Detroit. Yep. This is all going on. Yep. 101st Airborne is actually stationed. They had bivouacked at uh, Alter Road in Warren, which is only maybe six or seven blocks from where we lived, and they were patrolling our street. In Jeeps with M60s. Imagine that. I want you, if you're listening right now to this podcast, I want you to imagine a time when in the United States you're sitting in your living room enjoying a lemonade. Meanwhile, you look outside and there are military vehicles with armed men driving up and down trying to gain control back of the city. Like that's not something that a lot of places have experienced. Yeah, correct. Detroit has, and it's so weird to me that that's the week you happen to come home. Just happened to come home that day. So you got to see family. I imagine you didn't get to go out and do a whole lot. No, because the the curfew was on for like the first week I was home. I was there for 30 days. And, of course, still I was only 19 years old, so I couldn't go out bar hopping or anything. So I spent most of the time with the family, you know. And then it was time to head out to your next tour of duty, which is Bad Eibling. Yep. My dad told me the same thing again. He says, go to Germany and enjoy every minute of it. And, uh... The only thing he told me to do, don't bring one of them German girls home. <laughs> because he's still... He's a gotta, World War II vet. Well, you got to remember, this was in 1966, 67, and it's only 20 years yeah. after World War II. Yeah, so, I'm sure he's still feeling a little uh, some yeah. type of way. I mean, it it is the case. Yeah. I mean, and that was... A, that was I don't think there was a spot that wasn't a hardship zone for World War II. I mean, anywhere yeah. you were deployed, you were in it. Yeah. Um a lot of animosity still, you know, of what happened. And both sides, even when we got to Germany, there was still a lot of animosity towards where I was. I was in southern Bavaria. There wasn't a lot of uh, big units, army units. There was a lot of military in Germany at the time as occupiers still. And they had the, you know, the, the armor divisions. They had the different infantry divisions. But where we were, we were down on the Austrian border, southern Bavaria, where there was very few uh, Americans, and that was a beehive during World War II of uh, Nazi activity. Okay. So I assume there wasn't much of no. a trust level, but— In the older people. The in older the older people. people. The younger people, not so no. much. Yeah. But there was—there uh, definitely was some winding down. Uh, again, yeah. a lot of what you were doing there was, was exercise and practice, practice. in practice. case uh, Cold War had become less than cold. and uh, Which it did one time. Yeah, you you actually uh, we we talked about this very briefly, and I didn't want you to go into detail because I wanted to talk about it here. But while you were on duty, you were actually watching real troop movements yep. Yep. 
as they were about to, to enter into a country that did not belong to Russia. Yeah. 1968, uh, Russia invaded uh, Czechoslovakia and occupied Prague. And, and uh, in real time, we watched that happen. And we were one of the first military units to actually identify what was happening. And uh, it was a scary time because we thought for sure they were going to come right on through. And we were right on the border with Czechoslovakia. And it was uh, 48 hours or 72 hours. It was all... You could you tell how many of them? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So without get, without getting in detail, I mean, I'm still uncomfortable talking about some of this. Sure, stuff. but we're talking thousands what? versus hundreds. If yeah, that had yeah. been the case, yeah, you you could tell, you know, uh, paratroop movements. You could tell armor movements. You could tell. You could see exactly what was happening from practicing with these people, and all of a sudden it's real time. Wow. Know? Yeah, that would be a scary yeah. wake up call. Yep. Uh, on the less scary side of things, you're in Germany, yeah. and uh, Germany's got some good beer. Yes, it does. And I, I've seen some photos that uh, that made me laugh. You spell, you celebrated your 21st birthday there, didn't you? Mm-hmm. My my 19th and my 20th and 21st birthday was the 21st birthday. Was the photo that uh, <laughs> we have of your bill for your 21st party was that in Germany? <laughs> yeah, it was in Germany. So you spent out of your own pocket to celebrate your 21st birthday, almost $400, and looking into what the cost was back then, uh, comparatively what the money would be now, we're, we were at like $1,200 is what you dropped. And it was funny because I was just looking at the receipt and I told you that of this big long list of items, the last four were the only ones that were not Alcohol-related. It was Pepsi. You spent about $30 on Pepsi. Uh, You spent $9 on chips, pretzels, and dip. Uh, You bought some club soda and some water. And that averaged, like, I think it was about, I want to say it was 40 bucks total of your entire thing. Everything else was alcohol. Yeah, it was an interesting birthday. Yeah, I imagine so. Uh, some of the other photos that I did have the opportunity to see I, was the kegs, the, the big barrel kegs that you guys had. We worked hard and we partied hard while the, while we were there. It was just fortunate because the time I was there, we would work four days on and three days off, or we would work five days on, two days off. So we went back and forth. So I had a lot of time off. And in that time, you got to do some pretty awesome things. Yeah, you I you would actually, you backpacked across Europe a little bit. I took a 30-day leave and, and started, went to Spain and started from Spain, came back across, came back through Germany, came back through uh, Austria, Italy, went through Italy. Uh, so I got to see a lot backpacking for that 30 days. I know uh, I know. you said you come, uh, that you jumped on a couple of trains. Yep. And just did a couple day trips. Yeah, through the Brenner Pass, we got we went through the Brenner Pass, which was a passway that went into Italy. We hitchhiked down to Rome, saw Rome. Uh, all I had was a, a backpack on, and uh, we survived on bread and cheese and wine for thirty days, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty amazing. It, it, you, was, it was. You for, could never do that now. I mean, nobody could backpack through Europe like that anymore without worrying about everything that's going on in today's world. Yeah. But there they treated you. It was just like, it was just great. I mean, everybody treated you well. And Did you ever sleep on a person you never met's floor? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> we slept in a couple homes, just a couple fields with other people, but it was a, uh, it was a good. It was a different time. I mean, that's taking what your father said and running with it. Was, it. Experiences. I, I thought about that all the time, but I do often think back and, and say to myself, 
There's a lot of things that I didn't see and didn't do as a 19-year-old or 21-year-old that I would do now, things I would see now. You didn't stop at the the beautiful chapels. You no. checked out the bars instead. Well, yeah, I mean, basically. <laughs> you missed a lot. I mean, I did see a lot. I saw the Coliseum. I saw all that kind of stuff. But just to take the time to see the little things that were really would have been important, you know. You have a lot of uh, love for Bad Ibling. Yeah. Um, you talk about it in a very romanticized way when you do speak of it. Um, do you do you say that's because of the people that, that you yeah. served with, or is it because of the things you saw? I think it's a little of both. I mean, the, the city itself is very welcoming to us. There wasn't a lot of animosity there. Just the older folks. Yeah. Uh, they were very welcoming. Beautiful, beautiful area. I mean, if I could have stayed there for 20 years, I would have stayed in there for 20 years because it was just absolutely gorgeous with the Alps, you know, and and just the the picturesque area. Uh, We actually were stationed on a a former Luftwaffe uh, airbase. That is the equivalent of the Nazi Air Force. Air Force, right. And so we were living in the the, uh, buildings that the German forces lived in. Mm -hmm. We were eating in the, the... mess halls that the German forces ate in. So it was kind of a historic area. And it's weird because you were eating in the very place that your father's enemies ate. Exactly, exactly. And they still had a lot of the bomb shelters there, and they had a lot of, just a lot of different things that that uh, we got to see and experience, you know, by living there. It was kind of interesting. What would you say in your time in Bad Eibling, what would you say is your favorite memory from there? I think going to Austria and Switzerland uh, basically was skiing. I had thought when I was in high school, we used to have a ski club and we used to go to Mount Holly and it was the only mountain around and Mount Holly is a man-made place just outside of Detroit. Yeah. And I got to ski the expert slope, if you would call it. So, so you I thought, thought I was, you were the man. I thought I was hot. You know, I was like, well, you want to go? Let's go, buddy. Well, we would get to the ski slopes there and you would have to take a cable car to get to the bottom part of the slope, and then you would have to take a ski, a, a tram, a oh, lift, lift, to go to the top of the mountain. Well, when you talk a mountain, you're like 5,000 feet up in the air to go down these slopes. Well, you would get off the lift, and as you would turn, it would thump, and you were on, you were on your way. Well, you know, me, I was Mr. Cool, you know, so I was going around that ski lift, and it went around, <laughs> and I went, boom. I just went crazy down that hill, and I couldn't stop. I couldn't do nothing. <laughs> I was deathly afraid going down that thing, just trying to keep my balance. And if you know what a mogul is, I mean, I'm bouncing on these on the hills. They're moguls. Sure. And all I could see at the bottom of this hill is the ski resort. How are you going to stop? And there's a big glass window <laughs> at the restaurant where all these people are sitting down there eating, watching the people ski. And here I come down this slope. And I'm not going back and forth how you're supposed to. I'm going straight down this slope. <laughs> and finally... I figured, I mean, I got to do something, man. I'm going to go right through that darn window. And I just dived and I hit the ground and I slid about, you know, 100 yards down that slope until I stopped. But it was, uh, that's the last time I skied there, by the way. <laughs> did you have a moment when you were leaving when you thought, you know what, maybe I'll just stay here as a civilian? Yeah, I did. Uh, but when I was getting out, processing out, they they call you into the office and say, hey, would you like to extend would you like to re-up in the military for another three years or whatever? I had thought about it, but then they said you wouldn't be able to stay here, that you'd have to rotate back to Vietnam or Southeast Asia. And at that point, I said, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. I'd rather just go home, you know. 
And that's what you did? I did. So then you you go home, and you have a little bit of money from your time in the military, yeah, yeah. and you decide to travel. I did. When I, when I got out of the military, I left with my best friend, and we left the week of Woodstock, as a matter of fact. Woodstock was going on in New York. You were, didn't you originally plan to go there? The plan was either to go there or go home with my buddy, and... I chose to go home with my buddy. Who lived in Pennsylvania. Lived in Pennsylvania, a little town called St. Clair, Pennsylvania. And uh, good thing you went there. Well, yeah, it was, it was a good thing. I, Of course, again, I, I didn't travel much in the, even in the States at that point. So I thought, Pennsylvania, man, I, where is that? I got to go there. I mean, I <laughs> never saw it. And uh, his father picked us up. Uh, and, of course, at this point in time, I, I was mustering out of the service at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And, uh, of course, that was real military. And I, I, for the last couple of years, I hadn't been military much. I was like living on a campus when I was in Germany. Sure. So my hair was a little bit longer than everybody else's. And I didn't have nice greens dress uniforms like everybody else. Mine was kind of rumpled and not the new kind. Again, you you were still using what was left over from World right. War II. Yeah, basically. Yeah. But anyway, I got there and uh, we're processing out. They're making sure you got all your records together and all that kind of stuff. And I go in and the, the guy's, I think he was a first lieutenant or second lieutenant, you know, probably only 19 or 20 years old himself, you know, and I I just spent four years in the military, and you start dressing me down because my hair was too long. He said, oh, you're not wearing your, your service medals. I see your, you got your awards here. You don't have any of your awards on. All I had was a plain uniform on, you know. And he says, I'm not going to let you get out right now. He says, you go get your hair cut. You go get the proper decorations, or you're not going to get out of the service. We've got you for, you know, 48 hours after you're supposed to be out of here that we still control you, and I'll keep you here every minute of it. I said, oh, man. <laughs> Come on. Four years, I never had a problem, and I get down to right the end of my military, and this guy's giving me a hard time, right? So I went and got all this proper stuff. We had to wait till the next morning. Billy was already processed out of the Army. He was waiting for me. His dad came down to pick us up. So I finally went through the whole thing and got down. This guy looks my records. Okay, you got everything. Oh, your hair looks good, blah, 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 blah. He says, well, you sure you don't want to re-up? <laughs> I said, no. No, thank you. I'm and good. I left. <laughs> So me and Billy went to the front gate, and we're waiting for his dad to show up. And his dad had a, a station wagon at the time. People don't know what station wagons are. It's a it's a long car with a back end. Well, the back end was full of just beer, right? And he comes on the, to the gate and picks us up while we're waiting for him. I've already got my uniform, my shirt unbuttoned, and my ties off, you know, and my hat's tucked in my epaulet, you know. And I'm all set for civilian life, and here comes that lieutenant again down the road in the car, sees me standing there. Gets out of that car, dresses me down again. The last day I'm here, you know, I got to have trouble. Made me get my uniform all back on in shape. He says, just remember, Troop, you've got another 48 hours that I can control you. I can keep you here. I say, yeah, 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 okay. So he goes up to the front gate. We get in the car. We're going out the gate, you know, and as we're going by the gate, I just give him, <laughs> I give him a salute as we go by the gate, you know. Yeah, he means he flipped gone. him off. Say it right. Yeah, Say it right. And we're gone, you know. <laughs> So anyway, I'm on my way up to Pennsylvania, to Pottsville, Schuylkillhaven, St. Clair area. And I get up there, and uh, we're home that night, that evening. And we're just laying around, not doing much, having a beer, you know, and celebrating the fact we're out of the service. His dad had taken us out for a nice dinner. And uh, his girlfriend calls. And at that time, I don't think they were engaged. But uh, it was his girlfriend. She hadn't seen him in, you know, a year. And he was back now. She wanted to come up, and she didn't drive. So she decided to call her girlfriend who had a car and drove. 
and had to beg her to bring her up to see her boyfriend who just got out of the service. She said, all right, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll take you up. But you know, I really don't want to. You know, I don't like to go out with soldiers, and I know he brought somebody home with him, and I don't want to end up having to go out with this guy. Well, she came up, and not only did she go out with me, she married me and a year later. 49 <laughs> years later, you're yep. still married. Yep, yep. Next year is the, the 50. 50th year. Yep. yep, so I met her on a blind date the day I got out of the Army, August 17th, 1969. And, uh, yeah, that was it. You guys ended up together and married, and thankfully I'm here because of it, although you claim I was adopted. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about this real quick before we wrap up, and this has been awesome, and I'm so thankful you've been so open with me about yep. your time in the military because, again, we've never really discussed a lot of this stuff. You had the opportunity because, again, you were a part of the ASA. Top 10% of people in the military can apply to be in the ASA. You had uh, two opportunities that yeah. are pretty crazy, and yeah. uh, you applied and passed all of your testing to become a part of the NSA. Right, correct. But you passed up on it because they told you the first thing they were going to do is ship you back over to Vietnam. Three years. Well, not Vietnam necessarily. They just shipped me over for three years. Overseas, overseas. somewhere. They couldn't guarantee <laughs> me where to some embassy or whatever, but they uh, they couldn't guarantee it to say you had to go back for three years. And I said, no, thanks. I was just overseas for 37 months, 38 months out of a four-year a four tour. And you just didn't no. you didn't feel it? No, I didn't want to go back overseas. Was uh, this, th- this is all after you met. My mother. Well, that was before, actually. I, I had applied like in May. Oh, okay. So prior to getting out. Right. Okay. All right. right. And then the other thing, now, did the FBI offer come after you met mom? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we just we just got married or just, bef- just before we got married or just after married. Uh, I, was, I didn't have a job, real job. My uh, for those that uh, my dad keeps backing off the mic because he's looking at my mom. My mom's here; she's been listening the whole time. But he's you're looking for justification on what was, am I, I right remember. about this, dear? Uh. But they, I I had applied to the FBI not as an agent because I didn't have the education. Although they said I could uh, take college classes and eventually go to become an agent, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I applied for a technical job, um, technical side of the bureau, which was any, anything that was technical at the time. And uh, I would pass all the tests. And uh, uh, another offer came up in law enforcement that paid me, uh, I think at the FBI was like $4,000 a year. Sure. I think the law enforcement job was like $5,000 a year. Wow. But it was, well, money is not different. I, mean, I know, but it's crazy for somebody yeah. listening right now who's younger to to realize you were making four or five thousand dollars a year. Yep, a year. And you got by on that. Obviously, inflation changes things yep. from then to now, but still, it's yep. crazy that that was the '60s and '70s. That that's the the yep. yearly pay for somebody's take yep. home. Yeah. Um. So Pretty you crazy. ended up taking this job. It actually turned out to be federal anyway because. Of jurisdiction, yeah. anyway, uh, with the railroad, railroad police, yeah. railroad police, yep. which um, you know that that would be a whole podcast of itself. <laughs> but one of the things that stands out to me and makes me laugh is the railroad police actually were originally Pinkerton boys, yep. who were union busters, rebel rousers, uh, dudes who liked to fight. Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp type guys, he, he you know. Was. He, oh, was. he was a Pinkerton? Yep. I wasn't aware he of that. He was a railroad cop back in the, the day. Matt Masterson. 
Yeah, and and so it just it's funny to me that you know this this whole division of policing uh, got its start where it did and and where it's ended up and how prestigious it was and you you worked your way up to chief over time, yep. um, and you had uh, several states under your jurisdiction that you were running and yep. and any time that uh, any type of crime was committed with within X amount of of your railroad specifically you were in charge. Yep. I recall a lot of late nights where you would be at, you know, the primitive ass laptop computers that they had in the, the even in the mid to, to late nineties. Those they, I just remember you'd log on to this thing. It took forever, and you'd be on the phone getting your real time updates from your agents that were yeah. on the field. And, yeah. and you know, I can remember sometimes it was like two, three in the morning. I'd get up to go to the bathroom. You'd be down there dealing with something. And but yeah, it, it's funny that your military life led to your law enforcement life. Uh, which you're now happily retired from and uh, spending most of your days visiting the grandchildren when they're out playing their sports. Yep. So it's pretty crazy. I think that you did what your dad asked and you, you soaked it all in. I did. So it's very cool. Any final thoughts for anybody who's considering getting into the military? Any, any, anything you want to pass along to them? <laughs> if you do, enjoy every minute of it. It only comes around once. Go all in? Yep. All right. Well, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, this will conclude the uh, first, I guess, technically second episode of the podcast. Uh, Tom Pfeiffer, Army Security Agency, United States Military, uh, from 1965 to 69. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you.